Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Why does Paul keep talking about predestination? Um, The Holy Spirit moved Paul to continue to discuss this, so it must be because God wants us to think about this doctrine um, as challenging and as difficult as it might be. So what makes the doctrine so difficult is the way I defined it and the way I think the Bible presents it to us is this way, that when we think about God choosing individuals for salvation, and that's what we mean by predestination or election. This is God's decision from before the foundation of the world to set his heart upon some people and to save them and to not choose others. The common way of thinking about how that happened is that God looked into the future and he saw who would choose him and who would not choose him. And on that basis, then God made his choice. That God chose those who he knew would choose him. So when he saw that certain people would believe, he said, yes, you can be saved. But then he saw these over here who would not believe and he said, no, I'm not gonna choose you. That's the very common way of thinking about predestination and election. But, It seems in chapter 9 that Paul is presenting to us something different. What Paul seems to be saying is that God chooses who is going to be saved completely, exclusively, and solely on the basis of His purpose, grace, and wisdom. That it's not on the basis of anything that anybody has done or anybody will do. And if you want to look at verse 11, you'll see where this is summed up uh, clearly. Paul has used... Jacob and Esau, characters from the Old Testament, to illustrate this. And in verse 11, he says, Though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, before God could see anything that they had done, God chose Jacob and not Esau in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So that's that's the challenging part of this. Because... It strikes us, doesn't it, as unjust that God would just choose some and not others for some reason that has nothing to do with anything in us. It almost seems discriminatory. It doesn't seem fair. And so some of you may have thought of predestination your entire life only in those terms as God choosing on the basis of something that he sees you do. So this might be a brand new idea to you. Um, But what's interesting here is that Paul anticipates that we're going to have a problem with this. (laughs) And so that's why he says in verse 14, where we're going to start reading here in just a moment, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And that's the question that Paul is going to seek to to answer for us. We talked about that just a little bit when we addressed this last time. Um, But Paul is going to go into some detail between verses 14 and 23 to explain to us why there is no injustice in God in his choice of some and his decision to pass over others. So before I read this, I just want to challenge you to think about this or just to kind of keep this in mind as we read this passage. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons that God put this passage in the Bible, to, to challenge us to think about God in a brand new way, to, 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 to challenge us to consider 
whether we are willing to accept God on his terms or whether we're going to ask God to accept us on our terms. I think a big question that this passage causes us to ask is, do we exist for God's purpose or does God exist for our purpose? I think this passage is going to force us to examine and ask ourselves this, did God make us in his image or are we seeking to make him in our image? This passage shatters all of our inclinations to want to domesticate God and make him be something that we want him to be. God is different than what we expect. He's greater than we could ever imagine. And this passage really brings that home in a powerful way. So please stand now for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Romans 9, 14 through 23. Okay, Paul has just talked about God choosing Jacob rather than Esau. And so in verse 14 he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Lord, would you please send your spirit to give clarity and understanding to us. We are finite, weak creatures. This is your holy inspired word. We acknowledge the enormous gulf, Lord, that exists between us and you. But we thank you that you've communicated to us. We believe that these truths are here for our good. And so we pray for understanding that we would grasp the truth you're communicating to us and that we'd go away encouraged and rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I think in your bulletin, I think I had the verses go up to verse 29. I just couldn't cover all of that material, so we're going to stop at verse 20. Three. So <clears throat> this is the question, is God unjust, Particular, particularly in light of this doctrine of e election? Now there's a lot of different ways we could answer that. There's a lot of uh, uh, examples we can use, a lot of philosophical explanation that we could get into. That would be a legitimate exercise, but I want you to know that all I'm going to try to do here is follow Paul's line of thinking. I'm just going to show you here what Paul is saying, how Paul is answering this question. And it might not answer all your questions, but I'm just saying this is what 
the, the answers that Paul in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has given to us. And there's three reasons why Paul would say that the answer is no, God is not unjust. And he says it very clearly, doesn't he, there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So the answer is no. God is not unjust, but the question is why? How can we say that he's not unjust? So three reasons. And the first is this, because of God's mercy. God is not unjust in choosing some and not others because of his mercy. So um, we're going to look at this in verses 14 through 18. But first of all, I want to point something out that I think is very instructive for us. And that is the very fact that Paul is asking this question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? The fact that Paul is asking that question should tell us something, and that is that he expects that you're going to think that what he's saying is unjust. He expects that you're going to have kind of a negative reaction to this teaching, which would not be the case, would it, if... Paul was saying that God chooses some people because he sees that they're going to believe, and then he doesn't choose those that he sees are not going to believe. To us, that seems fair. That seems just. But Paul here is saying, is God unjust? Because he knows that you are going to respond that way if you're reading him rightly. And so it's like Paul is saying if you think that this seems unfair, and if you're bothered by this, you're reading me right. You're getting what I'm trying to say, but let me explain. Let me try to unpack this for you. And so that's what he does here in these first few verses. And <clears throat> notice that he does not appeal to human free will to explain this. Now, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that we don't have free will. I, I believe that we do have free will in a sense, though that needs to be qualified, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to qualify that. that. That would take too much time. But I just want you to know that I'm not denying the existence of free will in a certain way. What I want you to see here is that that's not the explanation that Paul gives he appeals to something else, and what he appeals to is the mercy of God. So you see that in verse 15. Is there any injustice? By no means. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So this is a quote from Exodus chapter 33. This is when Moses went to God and said, God, would you please show me your glory? And God did show his glory to Moses and then said this statement in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it's God's way of saying that I have the right to show my mercy to whomever I wish. Now it might help to define what mercy is in order to understand the case that Paul is making. What is mercy? We talk about mercy, we talk about grace. You've heard me make this distinction before. It's an important distinction. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is when we do get what we don't deserve. 
So in the gospel, if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus, you don't get what you deserve. That is, you don't get the punishment that you deserve for your sins. That's mercy. But on top of that, you get the righteousness of Christ is given to you. You get a filling of the Holy Spirit. You get to look forward to the resurrection of your body when Jesus comes again. Those are all things given to you that you don't deserve. So mercy and grace are different. But what Paul is appealing to here is mercy when we don't get what we do deserve. And Paul is saying it's God's mercy that makes election just. So let me illustrate this point this way. Let's say that you're speeding. You're doing 50 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. And a policeman pulls you over. And he asks for your driver's license. You give the driver's license to him. And he says to you, do you know that you were going 50 miles an hour? You say yes. And he says, do you know that the speed limit was 30 miles an hour? And you say yes. And he says, you know, I have every right to give you a speeding ticket. And you say, I know. And he says, but you know what? I'm in a good mood today. And I'm going to have mercy on you. And I'm not going to give you a ticket. You're not getting what you deserve. That's a simple example of mercy. And what Paul is trying to say here by using the word mercy over and over again in verses 14 to 18, he's trying to bring home the point that mercy is something that is undeserved. It's not something that we can demand. It's not something we have a right to. And there is therefore no injustice if it is withheld from us. So, imagine, going back to the illustration, um, imagine somebody who speeds, doing 50 and 30, and he gets a ticket. Imagine that person going to the judge and saying, Judge, this is such an injustice. I protest. And the judge says, why? I was doing 50 and a 30, and I got a ticket. And the judge says, yeah, what's the problem with that? Well, he should have given me mercy, and he didn't. Therefore, that is such an injustice. What would the judge say? You were guilty of speeding. You should have gotten a ticket. You got exactly what you deserved. And the policeman can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he can have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. But he doesn't owe that to you. And therefore, there is no injustice in the fact that you got a ticket. Do you see what Paul is saying here? If you just transfer this to the cosmic moral scale, what Paul has been telling us in the book of Romans is that all of us, men, women, and children, are rightfully under the condemnation of God because of our sin and rebellion against God. And so he made this point back in chapter 3. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is under God's condemnation. Everyone deserves punishment from God. And therefore, nobody has the right to lay claims to a right to God's mercy. So Paul illustrates this, brings this home in a powerful way. In verse 16, 
So whatever view that you hold on this issue of election, if you're one that looks at the Scriptures and you're thinking it's got to be true that God chooses on the basis of what we do, do you see what Paul does here? He wants to make it very clear that if God extends mercy to you, it has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with anything you've done, has nothing to do with any goodness in you or good intention in you or spiritual inclination in you. That's why we keep talking about it being all about grace. Look what he says in verse 16. So then, it depends. That is being saved. It depends not on human will. How could it be any clearer? It doesn't depend on human will. Nor does it depend on exertion, your effort, your morality, your good deeds. It depends on God who has mercy. And God can have mercy on whomever He wishes. And when He has mercy on some and chooses not to have mercy on others, there is no injustice in that. It's still a hard thing to take. Nobody wants to think of people perishing. I'm not suggesting that this is an emotionally easy thing, but it's not an unjust thing. And Paul then goes on to use Pharaoh as a case study. And here, you know, things kind of, you know, you'd expect if Paul was really concerned about you thinking that, you know, he's overemphasizing the sovereignty of God, you'd think that he might kind of back off of it. But as he goes through this passage, he just keeps stepping it up. And so, look what he says in verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so, now you can see why this is such a controversial passage. God hardens people? God takes hearts and makes them hard? That's why Paul's asking this question. It just, it just seems unjust, doesn't it? But isn't that what it says? He hardens whomever he wills. Now, what do we do with this? How do we explain this? Well. One thing I want you to see is that this is not talking about God coming along. He's using Pharaoh as an example. It's not as if Pharaoh was this pure, righteous, holy person. And then God came along and decided to turn him into an evil person. I think that's what puts us off sometimes when we hear this. We think God's taking good people and making them bad. That's not what this means. Pharaoh was a bad guy. Do you remember the story of Pharaoh? In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh enslaved Israel. He increased the Egyptians' oppression of Israel. He was granted the mercy of Moses going to him over and over again, calling on him to let his people go. God blessed him with miracles, showed him miracles right in front of his face to get him to turn from his sin and repent. And repeatedly, over and over again, Pharaoh refused. It says he hardened his heart. Now, the passage does say, it does say that God hardened his heart. But it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
And so you'll have to read that sometimes. It's very fascinating how those two things are held in balance. But the point seems to be not that Pharaoh was a good guy whose heart was hardened, but that Pharaoh was already a bad guy whose heart was hardening, and God simply allowed him to continue in his rebellion so that his heart would be further hardened. I think that's what verse 18 means. God just withdrew his restraining influence and allowed Pharaoh to continue doing what he wanted to do by his own free will. Free will definitely involved. There is free will. And Pharaoh used his free will to the max, his freedom to disobey God and to harden his own heart. So John Stott says it like this. If God, if God hardens some, he's not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. So, because of our understanding of God's mercy, we can see that there is no injustice in God's decision to elect some and not others. But there's another reason. The other reason it's not unjust for God to choose some and not others is because of God's sovereignty. And so this continues now, starting in verse 19. And so Paul here anticipates yet another objection. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So, again, if you're objecting to this, Paul has every opportunity here to back off and say, no, no, you know, wait a minute, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God is sovereign over everything and sovereign over human hearts. No, no, no. I'm not saying that God is driving everything in history. Human freedom and human will is actually the thing that's carrying history forward, and God's just standing back and letting human beings do it. I mean, he could say all that right now, but that's not what he says, does he? He doesn't say that. In fact, what Paul does is he protests against the protest. <laughs> he anticipates the protest, and then he brings it right back in verse 20, and he says, this is his answer, who are you? Who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. I, I, I got to admit, my first reaction to this is to be a little disappointed, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I'm kind of hoping that Paul will offer up a little more in terms of an, an explanation about how all this works. You know, that he'll take another chapter here just to explain philosophically how it can be that we can be free individuals and yet at the same time God be sovereign over everything that we do to try to answer this question that Paul is asking. Why does he still find fault? How can he hold us responsible for doing the wrong thing when he's sovereign over everything that we do? How do those two things go together? I'm looking for something more. But Paul's answer is just this. Who are you? Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to answer back to God in this way? And then he uses this example. He says, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Just saying, God is creator, you're creature. God is infinite, you're finite. God is holy, you're sinful. You're dependent upon him. The reason the universe exists is for him, not for you. 
he can do with you what he wants, quite frankly. That's Paul's argument. God is sovereign. He's trying to bring to our mind the absurdity. Can you imagine a cup, you know, that's been molded? The cup saying, hey, Potter, you gave me a, you know, too small of a handle. What are you doing? You painted me blue. I wish you would have made me brown. You know, can you imagine a pot talking back to the potter? We're supposed to look at that and say, that's just ridiculous. That's absurd. Well, it's just as absurd for finite men, women, and children to be demanding from God answers for how God does what he does. That potter clay image comes from Isaiah 45. Paul sa- or, uh, Isaiah says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. <laughs> Why don't you give me a handle? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? There's a warning here I think that Paul is giving us, a warning to prideful human beings, a warning a, 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 a declaration, a, uh, an exhortation from Paul to beware of standing in judgment over God. What Paul is saying here is beware of expecting God to meet your expectations. Beware of prosecuting God and putting Him on the stand as if He is a defendant answerable to you. Beware of making God into your image. Beware of assuming that you are on the moral high ground and God somehow has some explaining to do. Beware of that. God is not answerable to you or to me. The model answer came from Job. You remember the book of Job? Job's asking all sorts of questions. And and by the way, I want to make it clear, this is not saying that we can't ask questions to God. This is not a rebuke to the honest inquirer. It's not a rebuke to the sincere searcher, the person who really wants to know who is God and what is He like, who's answering questions and trying to work out theological things. This is not a rebuke to that person. And, And I hope it's very clear here that at New Life, we want people to feel free and open to ask their questions. This is a rebuke to the haughty, proud, defiant person who simply will not accept God for who he has revealed himself to be. And so Job kind of came to that point, Job chapter 40, and here's the model for how I think we should all respond when we get to difficult issues like this. The Lord God said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God Let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. There's just a time to just shut up. When it comes to divine, eternal matters that are beyond our comprehension. The proper response is, humble adoration, just to be reduced to humility, but along with that wonder and astonishment to be absolutely awestruck, 
that you and I can have a relationship with this God. <laughs> that what Jesus did on the cross and his death and resurrection, resurrection made it possible for you to call that God friend, <laughs> to walk with him, to know he's for you, that he's your savior, that he's your father. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why it's so astonishing. The gospel is astonishing. The only proper really reaction to this is just to be, be reverent before God. I love how Paul, uh, John Piper said this with regard to this passage. He's, he says, a great sadness in our day is people who are simply unable to be reverent. They seem to never have been awed by the greatness of God. They know only one mode of relationship, casual. This is a tragic and impoverishing incapacity. Friends, there is, a, there is a place for reverence. I don't know of any passage in the Bible quite like this one to bring us to a point of reverent humility before God. So there's no injustice in election because of God's sovereignty. Last thing, there's no injustice either because of God's glory. Because of God's glory. Friends, I mentioned this just a moment ago. This, this is the reason that something exists rather than nothing. This is the reason that you exist. This is the reason that you have life. This is the reason there is a universe and a human civilization. It's for the glory of God. It's that God in all of his attributes would be exalted and magnified and lifted up for all of us to stand in awe of him and praise him and adore him. That's the ultimate goal of all things. That's why everything exists, to exalt the glory of God. Over and over in Scripture, we see this. Psalm 55, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 115, is, 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 is life about the glory of the individual? No, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Let me repeat it just to make sure you understand. It's not to us. It's to your name, O oh God. Give glory. Romans 11, we're going to get there in a few weeks. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Do you see that? The Bible over and over speaks of this as the highest good in all the universe is for God to be glorified. So, if we go back to our text... Watch what Paul does here, starting with verse 22. He says, what if God... Now, notice all the attributes of God that kind of pile up here in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, His anger against sin, and to make known His power, His ability to do all things consistent with His nature and purpose, what if He has endured with much patience... Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What, what, what if all these various attributes of God are all coming together in the doctrine of election, verse 23, for the purpose of, in order to, what? Make known the riches of His glory. What if all of this is about God bringing glory to Himself? That seems to be what Paul is saying here. God is not unjust in electing some and not others because for God to show his wrath to some and for him to show his mercy to others, 
somehow that combination maximizes his glory more so than any other option. Now, how that actually works, I'm not sure, but I think that's what Paul is saying, that if everybody was condemned or if everybody was saved, it wouldn't glorify God as much as if some were condemned and some were saved. And so, therefore, God elects some and not others. If that glorifies God and the glory of God is the highest good in the universe, then no injustice has been committed if that is achieved. And the election of some and not others is what God is telling us here in the pages of Scripture is best for His glory. You know, friends, there really isn't... I think all of us as Christians, we have to wrestle with this. Whatever your position is on this issue, we can't get out from under it. If you believe that some are saved and some are not, if you believe that there are some who are going to heaven and some who are going to hell, if you believed that there are some who are vessels of wrath and some are vessels of mercy, if you believe, like in verse 23, that God has prepared some for glory, but in verse 22, others are prepared for destruction, if you believe that, no matter how you get there, whether it's free will as the central thing or whether it's God's sovereignty as the central thing, the fact is that God could save everyone. He could have chosen to do that, and He hasn't. And so we all have to wrestle with the problem. The doctrine of election doesn't create the problem. It's the doctrine of heaven and hell that creates the problem. And the Bible is pretty clear that some go one place and some go another. God has chosen not to save everybody. Would I have done it differently? Probably, but I'm not God, and He is. And what this text at this point forces us to do is just to, to deal with the reality of eternal matters, that one day we're all going to be ushered into eternity. Prince died this week, 57 years old. Who saw that coming? I didn't. 57. Enjoying life. Superstar. Fairly decent health. I know he had some health problems there at the end. And right now, Prince is in eternity. He is either in heaven or hell. I don't know where he is. I don't know. But he's in one of those two places. And what this passage is doing is confronting us with this reality. And friends, I can tell you, God has been merciful to you because you've heard the gospel. You've heard it proclaimed to you today, even this morning. You've heard it proclaimed that God has had mercy. He has sent His Son. His Son has died on a cross. His death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins. He has risen from the dead. He says, if you trust in me, you're going to heaven. You will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be redeemed. You belong to me. You'll be my child. I'll be your father. And the challenge to you today, friends, it's not to figure out all the answers to the doctrine of election. The challenge for you today is how will you respond to the gospel? Will you put your hand over your mouth and humble yourself and believe? Or will you harden your heart? Whatever we say about God's sovereignty, at this point, you've heard it, and it's up to you. How are you going to respond? Let's pray.
Lord, we do thank you for the richness and wisdom of your word. Lord, these are hard things. Father, whatever I have said today that might be, that it might be wrong, that might have misrepresented this passage, if there's anything that was not pleasing to you, God, let it fall away and let only what is true retain in the hearts of these people. And God, give us hearts that rejoice and are glad and worship you as a great, almighty, merciful, sovereign, and glorious God. We pray these things all in Jesus' name.